Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk. Happy Hour Radio, sponsored by Mary Hill Winery. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Well, hello, Seattle. Happy sunny summer. Happy August. Happy Hour Radio. Hey, thanks for tuning in, and we're right here at 570 KVI every Saturday night, 6 to 7 p.m., right here on your dial. Or if you want to stream us live, you can do that uh, on iTunes Radio or... Uh, on the internet. So check us out, happyhourradio.net. We've got uh, always some great content, some great beverages, wine, beer, spirits, cocktails, of course, some food, events, and education from all around the world. And I'm your host, Christopher Chan, Event Sommelier, uh, well, certified wine specialist of wine and uh, International Sommelier Guild diploma holder. So got lots of cred, but uh, I just like to have fun and, and drink some cool juice, uh, cool bubbles, and uh, some great cocktails. And that's what we're going to do today. I've got Tony Apostolakos, who is from Mazi. Uh, it's an Italian producer up there in the North Region, up from the Veneto, uh, best known for Valpolicella. Valpolicella. Um, it's a region, and they make great red wines and some sparkling wines, too, I believe. And uh, I want to say, Tony Apostolakos, welcome to Happy Hour. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Well... I'm in Italian time. I love that. <laughs> you just got here. That's fantastic. And so, uh, well, let's talk about Matsi. Um, what's your role? And uh, tell me about the uh, the producer. Well, I work for uh, Mazi based in uh, Verona. I'm a U.S.-based uh, um, representative, and um, I'm the export uh, director for the U.S. The ex- The expert export guy. Becoming slowly, slowly the expert. And, uh, um, of course, uh, the Italian area of Verona, a lovely, lovely little town. And uh, the, the region is known as the Veneto. And, of course, uh, what are the specialties in, in the wine region there? Well, you know, Amarone first is the uh, the specialty wine, uh, kind of the, the flagship or the king of Valpolicella. You know, Valpolicella has been produced and Amarone for, for generations in the area. But Amarone is really the king of the area. And... The technique of drying grapes at Passamento is really the defining uh, winemaking technique that separates uh, Verona from probably the rest of the world, not just Italy. Yeah, or maybe a little Santorini, right? They use that same... Uh... <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, uh, drying grapes is not um, exclusive to uh, Verona, but it's certainly the uh, specialty of Verona. And I like the way you said king of uh, uh, the Veneto and Verona. we got uh, Piedmont, of course, the uh, Barolo is king there. Of course, we have uh, Brunel de Montalcino down in Tuscany. So each area has their king. And I haven't had a chance to uh, enjoy Amarone as much. And Amarone, of course, is the name or style of the wine. It is the name of the wine, uh, and it must be produced uh, in Valpolicella, and it must be produced with indigenous grapes from Valpolicella, and there's many laws that it must conform to. And I, when I was reading about Italy, of course, in my studies, I understand there's like 5,000 native varieties of Vitis vinifera there in Italy. Um, at least, <laughs> at least. And, and, and for us, we practice you know, only with indigenous varietals. And for us, it's really only three that are important. Right, uh, the three reds? The, well, the three grapes, yeah, correct. Uh, the three reds that make up the one red. Yes. Uh, Corvina, Rondanella, and Molinara. Molinara. All indigenous uh, grapes, uh, grapes that are uh, born to be dried, uh, as we say. <laughs> They're uh, a, a really uh, 
um, unique grapes. Born to be wild or born to be dried. I think we should have a, a Verona theme song there with uh, a <laughs> yeah. cool rock and roller. Um, speaking with Tony Apostolakos, who is the export uh, manager for Amazi, which is, of course, the great uh, Amarone Valpolicella producer of uh, world-class red wines that are, that are known for being dried. So obviously we talk about ripeness and grapes, and people are looking for great ripeness and great red wines. Um, but this is a little different because you get that great ripeness, but now you're concentrating the flavors and tell us about this apasimento process yes yes you know um, in Verona you know the weather is not conducive to producing varietals that have a deep deep structure upon uh, the, the harvest so this technique was uh, created um, you know thousands of years ago as a way of once to preserve the wine uh, but really more importantly to concentrate the flavors and to really get um, maximum concentration and to really have a deeper personality and a deeper structure. So the technique of drying grapes, when I say dry, they're not in the sun, they're not hanging on the vine, they're on bamboo racks in lofts that are sitting in the hillsides and they'll gently dry for uh, 100 days or 120 days, uh, enough to lose maybe 40% of their weight. So when they do become crushed, uh, they make these rich, voluptuous wines that maybe have a perception of sweet, but they're still uh, dry. That's just the concentration of flavor, isn't it? Correct, correct. And there's also something unique um, happening in the grapes of Botrytis, another um, uh, unique phenomena uh, of an Amarone. While, that, in, while they're drying in the drying process, yes, they get a yeah, little bit of that uh, yeah. gray mold that happens on strawberries? Yeah, so, it, it wouldn't be gray. We, we try not to have the gray. <laughs> That's but, why strawberries get gray. <laughs> correct. But we will have a slight attack on the Corvina after a few months. And that's enough to give a slight uh, glycerin during fermentation oh, that okay. makes uh, Amarone silky and mm-hmm. makes it really attractive young. And it certainly uh, makes you uh, feel that you're having something sweet, but that acidity and that pleasant bitterness in the back convinces you the wine is dry. We'll call that bitterness tannin, right? Um, yes, it's also really a result of uh, uh, drying the grapes because we're drying the whole clusters. Uh, okay, so it's not just individual grapes pick. You just put the clusters out. The whole cluster is laid out on racks. They must be you know, moderate size to get a proper airflow. You can't have a huge cluster like a more ved cluster, which are giant bear paws dr- drying because you get probably some you know, fungal and microbial well, activity. You know, uh, it, decades ago, that was a big issue. Today... The grapes that are harvested are, are ones that have spaces. I see. And they really have, um, um, they could have good airflow through them. That's interesting because so, you mentioned that the the weather up there is not conducive to getting full ripeness or structure for the for those grape varieties that have to hang longer. But is that also, also part of perhaps the flowering process? Do you get some shattered? Do you get a little bit of couleure in so that the grapes don't necessarily form? Or is that a natural thing that happens no, within the clusters? It's a natural thing. You know, Valpolicella on its own is really a pleasant, pleasant wine. It has uh, uh, this nice tart cherry and cranberry um, but you know it's man that you know interferes and takes nature to the next level by drying uh, the grape. So the nature of Corvina is not to be a bold um, uh, 
deeply structured wine. It's the technique that is uh, is taking it to the next level. Well, I'm really excited to taste it. It's one of those uh, wines that you don't see often, unless you're, of course, in an Italian restaurant and, and or a big steakhouse, because they are mm-hmm. powerful wines, but they tend to get lost um, underneath the Cabernets and the Bordeaux blends and that thing. And so I'm excited about tasting it. And I see three lovely bottles in front of me. Um, let's talk about the, the wines of Valpolicella. So that's also a blend. And when you're drying these grapes, do you just throw them all in, or actually you're bl- uh, drying the grapes separately? I'll answer all questions. <laughs> Maybe I'm not fired. in the I'm order. I'm so excited. I'm like just chatting, firing them at you. Yeah, Val Policella is a geographic region, number one, and it's also the name of a wine. Essentially, the grapes that are harvested in Val Policella, if they're pressed immediately, the wine is named a Val Policella, and that's a bright, young, almost our version of Beaujolais. Yes. Um, If you choose to dry all of these grapes for an extended amount of time, several months, then you'll make a wine called Amaroni. Um, When you make a Valpolicella, you do a vinification of separate varietals and you blend. Okay. When you make an Amaroni, you're taking all the varietals and drying them together and doing one vinification. Interesting. So it's much more complicated. Um, they're completely different wines. Of course. And, of course, we have uh, different uh, hybrids of these wines where we take some fresh berries, when I say fresh, berries that have been picked and crushed, and then we'll ferment them with some semi-dried berries to make you know combinations of wines that have part Amarone and part Valpolicella. So we really can have a full spectrum of, uh, uh, of wines from a, a lightly structured... Uh, wine to a medium-bodied wine with good uh, uh, acidity, with a hint of an Amarone, and then we can have these big, voluptuous, beautiful uh, Belvedere Amaronis. That's awesome. And you've got the, the, the range of textures and mouthfeels and brightness and concentration, so you can pair these wines with a variety of different dishes, which is wonderful. Um, you mentioned uh, about the, the Valpolicella and... Um, when you're when you're drying the grapes for Amarone and you use the Valpolicella, does that have a name to it? Is that Raposo or is that? Uh... It's interesting, you know. Uh, we're just embarking uh, on the fiftieth anniversary of the first vintage of the first Raposo ever produced, and that was from Mazio uh, back in '64. Wow. Um, Campo Fino Raposo was a proprietary. Uh, name <laughs> that uh, we coined uh, to make a wine that filled the void between a Valpolicella uh, and uh, an Amarone. And it was really taking the, the doing a second fermentation with the, the remnants of an Amarone when it's been racked and doing that second fermentation with a Valpolicella. So we began that process in 64 and we created this big international category of uh, Ripasso that uh, we started, and then we evolved from that to doing something uh, we think even more special by not just doing a second fermentation, but doing the second fermentation with freshly dried grapes rather than spent fruit from an uh, Amarone. Oh, right. So now we're getting even deeper into an Amarone uh, by using um, these freshly dried grapes to give a much more brighter, richer style of wine than we made back in the 60s. So the, the quote-unquote Rapasso method, which you coined back in 1964, has now evolved to being less dry or less fully dried grapes and more fresh dried grapes, right? No. Uh, the Rapasso method that we created is still exists and producers still make it, but we've evolved from it and created our own category of double fermentation. Ah, okay. So, And, and what's that in Italian? Uh, a double fermentation? Yeah. Well, you know, we don't have a name for no. it. It's simply Campo Fidin. It's double pasta. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, a Campo Fidin stands uh, on its own as a proprietary red wine, the Rosso de Veronese. Oh, this is what I have in my glass yes, right in front yes. of me. Yes, so, uh, you know, you're getting uh, the enriched qualities of an Amarone, but you're still getting the approachability of a Valpolicella here. Yeah, it's, it, I took a sip while you were chatting because I just, well, I loved looking at that wine and I couldn't resist. And it has this beautiful elegance and gentle mouthfeel, but still has carries the bright notes, the bright red notes from the Valpolicella, the style of wine, but it gives you depth and just grace and silk. I'm, I'm going to take another sip. You tell me about this wine. This is the 2011 Masi Campo Fiorin. Fantastic. 2011 uh, vintage of Campo Fiorin. Uh, Campo Fiorin um, is made from indigenous varietals from the classical area. So we have Corvina, Rondanella, Molinara. Uh, we do a slight uh, appassamento on a portion of the grapes, and then we in- reintroduce those back into the wine and do a second fermentation. So now we've really infused the wine with the beautiful characteristics uh, of an Amarone. Um, you have cherry, you have spice, you have this great acidity, you have this great mouthfeel. You have the ability to age the wine for decades, but really it's very attractive uh, at a young age. And you know, it's really a, a great value. Uh, Back in 64, when we first released the wine, it was the first super Venetian wine. It, ah. was, it was tagged back in the 60s. <laughs> and today we have um, uh, campaigns uh, worldwide uh, celebrating the 50th uh, anniversary of this wine. It's absolutely delicious, and you described it perfectly. Um, certainly something that can have some age and uh, develop further, but bright and um, just beautiful in the mouth, of course, smooth, and the tannins are extremely soft. I'm speaking with Tony Apostolakos, who is the export manager for Matsi, this beautiful, uh, well, at least 50 years old. How, how old is the winery and the produ- production there? From the 1770s. <laughs> uh, and we have vineyards uh, that we've uh, been cultivated since the 1200s. So uh, we have... Uh, a long history. That uh, is a long, long... 1200s. Wow. Correct. Uh, some like of our Visigoths and stuff. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, there were simple Venetians back then. Uh, we also have, you know, in front of us today, a wine uh, from the 1400s. Awesome. Well, I'm excited. When we t- uh, come back from this break, we're going to talk more about the Campo Fiorin, which is a, uh, a beautifully... There's some great language here, nectar something, and I want you to, uh, Tony to talk about that. And uh, um, when we come back from the break, we're going to dive into two other great red wines and uh, from the, the wonderful producers from Matsi, of course, uh, is... Uh, well, from the 1200s at least, and now 1770s. If you uh, want to check us out and you have any questions about uh, these wonderful wines, send me an email to ask at happyhourradio.net. And uh, if you've got a Twitter handle, we are at Happy HR Radio. So stick around. We'll be right back with Tony Apostolakos of Matsi on Happy Hour Radio. Hi, I'm Jeff Lindsay Thorson with WT Vintners and RN74, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan on 570 KVI. Only one station has Sean Hannity. Weekdays, 3 to 6 p.m. on Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio. Now back to Seattle, Somalia, Christopher Chan. All right, welcome back. Uh, it's a sunny 
sunny day. Uh, well, sun's gone almost, but we love summer in Seattle, and I have the pleasure of, of having some beautiful wines that will pair well with summer, winter, fall, and most likely spring when you got that spring lamb. I'm speaking with Tony Apostolakos, who is the export uh, manager for Masi in the Veneto in uh, Verona up there in the uh, in the top part of Italy. We're talking about the, the Camp Forioni. Say that again. Campo, say it again. Campo Firin. Campo Firin. And uh, 50 years since you introduced this great style of winemaking, um, using fresh f- fresh juice with a little bit of dried fruit to enhance it, to give it a little more power, a little more smooth, a little more glycerin. Um, it's absolutely delicious. There's three words on this bottle, and uh, I'm not quite familiar with them. Nectar, Angeliorum, Omnibus. Yes, um, those words were written above the original vineyard. Uh, the Boscaini family, the proprietors of uh, of Mazzi, uh, were um, uh, written above uh, a vineyard named Mazzi. And essentially, it's um, nectar for mankind from uh, the angels. Wow. And it's remained on uh, um, the bottles of uh, Campo Firin since in- inception. Yeah, this, that has to be, of course, uh, fate. And uh, if you've got those words, you have to use them. And you don't want to take them up because that's a great story. Well, uh, let's talk more about the story of your wines. I see a bottle of 2010 Costa Sera Amarone Classico. Correct. Costa Sera um, is really our flagship uh, Amarone. It's, uh, it's been in production uh, since the 1950s. Uh, really when Amarone was really born, even though the technique has been uh, in existence for thousands of years. Uh, Costa Sera is really this um, wonderful uh, interpretation of Amarone that uh, we have multiple sites uh, across the classical area that we uh, select fruit to make this one particular uh, style of Amarone. It's a concept of uh, slopes that are facing the sunset, uh, hence the word Costa Sera. And really, the idea of this Amarone is to have a wine with no oxidization, with brightly concentrated fruit, with a touch of botrytis, with a spice, this dried cherry, uh, with an elegance, uh, something that you don't necessarily expect from an Amarone when you first hear the word Amarone. Perhaps you're thinking Porto or Baroque or really uh, chewy. Have you heard many... um, um, different ways of explaining old Amarone. And it was at that point. But, you know, Costa Sera was really the first um, uh, in a trend setting back in the 80s of changing the style of Amarone and making them much more drinkable and much more, uh, you can release them younger and you can still age them for the decades that uh, that they they could be uh, aged as well, too. This wine is absolutely amazing. Uh, I'm just thrilled when I first taste it. It's like, wait, this is not my grandfather's Amarone. This is the new version, the hot new car version, which still has all that state-of-the-art equipment and the tradition of being, you know, world-class. But it's a little racier. It's a, it's much fresher. Um, it's round in the mouth, but it has the depth of flavor that you look for from Amarone's from those three grapes. And it doesn't have that... Um, that expression that comes with the development of, of those really dried grapes in the older and bolder styles. This this is just beautiful. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you. It, it is. It's uh, really a, a surprise to many that haven't tasted Amarone for some time or have only heard descriptions wow. uh, of Amarone. But I, I think really it's a great red wine from the Veronese area made from this technique of apasamento and of course Amarone is the style but I think it transcends more than just the category of Amarone it's applicable to so many uh, types of cuisines and so many different occasions that uh, 
to call it just an Amarone would be in some ways uh, li- uh, limiting, I think. Right, just calling it just a car. That's not just a car. Yeah, of course. And, you know, uh, what we haven't changed is the classic recipe uh, that our grandmother, so to speak, used. What we've changed is the is her kitchen. Oh, we've, right. Uh, uh, updated uh, the, the winery. The kitchen aid. So the, <laughs> the techniques are much more polished than refined, but uh, essentially the the heart is still ancient. It's still the classic three varietals of Corvina, Rondanella, Molinara, still sourced from the classical area, still from these great traditional vineyards, but the technique is much more uh, enhanced, much more sophisticated. It's the skill of man now that's elevated these wines. Wow. Um it's got style, definitely personality, some verve, and really just a, a pleasant, delicious drink. And uh, I'm thrilled about tasting this, especially because my, you know, my um, preconceived notion about my experiences were that they were a little, a uh, little denser and bigger, and you really had to sort of repose and like, okay, we're going to drink Amarone tonight. But this is just fantastic. Yes, and and you know, you mentioned steakhouses earlier. My goodness, I, I think our best. Uh, um, uh, clients for these wines are American steakhouses that serve great ribeye and porterhouse, and it's a great uh, partner. And uh, and um, many many Americans are discovering these wines now. Fantastic. Well, if you want to discover them here in Seattle, you got to check out, of course, uh, the Metropolitan Grill with our friend Noel Doty, uh, Serafina, the classic uh, little eatery on. Uh, Bistro style on East Lake, Carmines, of course, down in the Pike, uh, excuse me, uh, Pioneer Square, Tulio, and of course, all the great wine shops have this fantastic wine. So next up is the Vallo Amaron. Vallo Amaron, yes. Uh, Vallo is a single vineyard uh, Amaron. You know, we produce five different styles of uh, Amaron. We have five labels, but they're five completely different concepts. They're different wines. Uh, over the years, the family has uh, selected vineyards specifically for the production of Amarone. And Vallo Armaron has been in existence since the 1400s, uh, probably making sweet wines, certainly Valpolicella. Uh, in the 1970s, we uh, transformed the vineyard into strictly Amarone. Um, there's a connection uh, with this vineyard with the family of Dante the poet, hence the, the name Serego Alleghetti, the, the chateau that's written uh, on the label. Um, oh, that's right. Serigo Alighieri. Yes, you know, Alighieri was a Tuscan man that was expelled from uh, Tuscany. But he, he, <laughs> what he was did, he doing? <laughs> well, it's not probably... We'll talk about that story later. Yeah, yeah, and the Greeks' opinion is much different than the Italians' opinion of what happened. Uh, regardless, uh, he was expelled, um, and his family uh, eventually um, uh, resided in Valpolicella, and they purchased this property in the 1300s. And they've been living there still. Uh, for over se- almost 700 years. And we collaborated with him in the 70s and started producing uh, Amaroni uh, for the family. And here today, we make it in a way that's really quite unusual. Uh, it's a single vineyard first by Arbaron, but we're also enhancing the wine by finishing it in cherry wood barrels, which is we're probably the only producer to use this wood as a way of finishing the wine. And cherry wood is what gives it another defining aspect of this Bing cherry or preserved cherry, this remarkable complexity. There's a slight uh, little air loss uh, uh, we get uh, because the barrels tend to leak after a few months, so we're getting a little bit of this uh, micro-oxidization that gives the wine elegance at a younger time. It really is for the Amarone lover. This is really quite a beautiful wine. This is the classic style. Of course, it's got density, depth, and the tannin is a little more firm, um, certainly not aggressive, and layers of flavor. It, exp- it expands on the palate, and uh, at the end of it, it's still smooth. It's a pleasure. Um, cherry 
Cooperage, huh? Did you make those? Do you have your own cooperage? Are those new barrels and, and seasoned, or are they old barrels that tend to leak? Uh, they tend to leak, and their maximum life is approximately five years. The cherry wood is sourced locally. Uh, however, we don't make the barrels ourselves. We have others that make it, but the cherry wood is local. Are I those mean, the Morlino cherries or something? Uh, that is some Italian cherries. I'm forgetting the name. My cocktail friends will well, kill you, me for that. You know, the, the north, because of Lake Garda, uh, there's a great microclimate. There's cherries, there's peaches, and in abundance, uh, olives. Uh, it's really quite an almost tropical area in some ways. But cherry has been used for generations, but they're difficult to manage. So producers yeah. would stop. They don't really grow straight all the time. Using and and to make a barrel from a cherry tree is you need quite twenty, uh, industrious. 20 trees. And we found after four or five months uh, that there is leaking uh, occurring. So they're partially. That's toasted. not the angel share. <laughs> it is the angel share. Yes, um, uh, but regardless, after several months, uh, um, the wine is put back into bottle and, and then released. Well, I, I'm really enjoying this because I think uh, it's one of those things that haven't been on a radar. Even in my sommelier tasting groups, we taste uh, Italian wines, but it's typically the test the Brunellos and Barolos and Barbarescos. Um, but to Miss Amarone, and uh, tell me some pricing on, uh, of course, the Campo Fiorin is uh, what price on sort of the reaches of 25? No, it's less than 20 average retail uh, across. Uh, That's a great buy. Area. Yes, that's no, it's got a lot of, of personality and, and elegance. And the Costa Sera? Costa Sera would be uh, 50? Uh, uh, between 50 and $55. Yeah. And uh, Vio would be close to $80 retail. Interesting, because I would say if, you, if people like Syrah from Washington State, which we make a lot of, this is kind of one of those wines that was reminiscent of Syrah, but it's not as heavy. Um, I would invite people to try this because it definitely has more red fruit. And, of course, the, the Vio Amarone is, is in the $70 region. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic wines. Again, you get them at Carmine, Canlis, the Met Grill, uh, Serafina, Tulio, and most wine shops. I imagine they're all great. And uh, I'm going to finish the segment with a little song. Is a, you know, when the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's Amarone. <laughs> no. All right. I'll stop singing. I'll just keep drinking. Um, Tony Apostolakos, the export manager for Mazzi in uh, Verona of Italy. Thanks so much for sharing these wonderful wines, the stories about Mazzi, and for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. It was our pleasure. Thank you. Oh, such such a treat. Uh, I'm, I've still got some wine in my glasses, so I'm going to stick around. When we come back from this break, uh, I think my glasses might be empty. We'll have to pour something new. And coming up, I'm going to tell you what we're going to try, uh, so stick around on Happy Hour Radio. you got to check out our website. It's happyhourradio.net. You can find uh, our events. And, uh, hey, it's still uh, rosé season, so you got to check out my wine, coralwines.com. Check it out. We'll be right back on Happy Hour Radio. Hi, this is John Bookwalter with J. Bookwalter Wines. You're listening to Happy Hour Radio on 570 KVI. A look at the world from a Northwest perspective. Lars Larson, live, weekdays, noon to 3. 
Talk Radio 570 KVI Want to Know Weekends continue. Now back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. Hey, this is Christopher Chan, your host of Happy Hour Radio, and I am here at Wild Ginger in downtown Seattle for part of our In the Vineyard series, and I have the pleasure of uh, meeting a young French woman, and her name is Charlene Drapier, and uh, they are the family Drapier, which uh, is in the Aube region of Champagne, and who doesn't love bubbles? You have to love these. They actually make 13 different, uh, well, different blends and some single varieties of Champagne, but I want to say, Charlene, uh, bienvenue, uh, was it happy hour? <laughs> Merci beaucoup. Merci beaucoup, uh, Chris, for welcoming me to Seattle and happy hour. I'm happy to uh, to introduce my family champagne to you. Yeah, I'm excited. So just now um, tasting through and, and learning the story of Drapier. Um, of course, we saw a splash of Drapier recently uh, with uh, the holidays a couple years ago. But um, now you're making a brand new uh, grand entrance here to the Seattle market. And tell me about the family of Drapier. Yeah, so we are, have been in the producing champagne for over 200 years, uh, since 1808. And I actually the eighth generation and I'm very lucky, well, sometimes not that very lucky, to work with three generations of Drapier. So I'm still working with my grandfather and my father and my two younger brothers. It's a great adventure. That's really exciting to, to, to know that you have such history in winemaking. And obviously, it's, that's pretty rare for Washington State when we consider ourselves the second leading producer of wine in the United States. But we don't have the history. Our history only goes back really 40, 50 years. And you're talking about 200 years. But I saw something in the materials here that about the 1600s. So tell me about the genesis of Drapier. You were growers at first? Yes, we were. Actually, we've always been in Champagne. Drapier, Draper, means uh, um, merchants of silk. Because in Champagne, that used to be the hub between uh, Asia and Northern Europe. So people used to trade um, silk. And that's what we used to be. So we've always been in Champagne uh, for over 400 years. And at the beginning of the 19th century, they started being growers. And uh, it, it uh, grew, grew, and grew. And my grandparents, luckily my grandmother, too, was very important at making our own champagne. So we've been producing our own champagne for almost a century now. That's really amazing. And I was wondering if the, uh, the draper was, was something about textiles. And uh, so you're trading silk for champagne. That seems like a pretty good trade. Yes, I think we're happy. My ancestors did the, did the turn, yes. Um, so exciting. So uh, I understand that there's really five regions in the area of Champagne. We've got the Montagne de Rance. We've got uh, the Cote de Blancs. But you're, you're part of the uh, southern area, which is called? Uh, it's called the Aube region, and it's called the Cote de Bar. So that's the micro region. So we're actually very close to Burgundy. We're uh, halfway between northern Champagne and southern uh, Burgundy. And you've been producing, you specialize, I mean, that area in the uh, Cote de Bar is really known for Pinot Noir. Yes, we have 70% of our estate planted with Pinot Noir, and we made our specialty out of 100% Pinot Noir, so what we call in Champagne Blanc de Noir, uh, because of our proximity with Burgundy and because we, are, uh, we have uh, grapes that are riper than the rest of Champagne, so we make beautiful, very well-balanced Blanc de Noir. 
I, I have to attest this is very true. Uh, Savoray with the the texture and to really have a chance to taste these 100% Pinot Noirs, which is rather rare in uh, the Champagne region. Obviously, Champagne's known for blending a la Dom Perignon. That's what he kind of did and got the notoriety there. Um, but let's talk about some of the offerings uh, from the House of Champagne. For 200 years, you have something that's uh, readily uh, recognizable. It's a beautiful orange label or dark gold yellow. Tell me about the Carte d'Or. Yes, the Carte d'Or is, uh, is uh, our flagship label. Uh, it's called uh, Carte d'Or, which means golden label in, in French, because um, one of my grandparents' first customer thought it really reminded him of stone fruits and also most particularly of quince. Quince paste is something that we have in France with cheese. Actually, our champagne works very well with cheese. Um, because the tasting notes are very similar to Queen's Paste. Uh, it's, it's a delicious wine. Of course, it's made of 75% Pinot Noir, 50% Chardonnay, and 10% Meunier. It used to be called Pinot Meunier, but now simply it's just Meunier in Champagne. And I understand that uh, perhaps our listeners don't realize that there are six varieties of grapes that are grown in uh, the Champagne region. What are the other three? So you know the Pinot Meunier, the Chardonnay, and the Pinot Noir, and the other three are... Two of them are indigenous from the Aube, so I talked about the Aube earlier. These two uh, indigenous varieties are Arban, Arbane, and, sorry for my accent, <laughs> and uh, Petit Mélier. And these are two white varieties. The two others are the Blanc Vrai, it's actually very similar to the Pinot Blanc that you find in Alsace. And also the Fromento is the Champenois name for the Pinot Gris in Alsace. So many things to yet to discover in Champagne, right? Lots to discover, and it's quite interesting. Um, I don't think I was aware of the Pinot Gris part there. I knew the Messier and the Arbane and the um, Blanc Vray. But uh, I just learned something, too. And speaking with Charlene Drapier, who is uh, the eighth-generation family uh, representative for Champagne Drapier, which is located in the southern region of uh, the Champagne area, close to Burgundy, called the Aube and the Cote de Bas. Um, we just discussed the Carte d'Or, which is their flagship uh, offering of Champagne. And um, we tasted today something called Brut Nature. We, we had a Blanc de Blanc, Brut Nature, as, as well as a Rosé. Tell me about these wines. So the Brut Nature um, means, first we have to start with what it means because it can be a bit obscure. Brut Nature means a champagne that has no added liquor. So actually in all the champagnes you would find, uh, most of them, uh, you would always have a tiny bit of liquor that would determine if it's a sweet or if it's a dry or it's a Brut champagne. So Brut Nature means that there's no added liquor at all. And when we're saying liquor, we're not really talking about spirits or fortified spirits. This is a term for the liquor d'expedition, which is the dosage, the, how we, we add sugar and a little more uh, wine to the bottle, which has been uh, disgorged when you lose some. So you have to add a little more, a little more wine here, and it's called liquor in French, but it's really just more wine. Exactly, yeah, exactly. It's actually, it's, it's, it has no alcohol content. It's only... Uh, sweet only only sugar so in in most of champagne you would find this liquor and we made our specialty out of making champagne that has no added liquor um, so why do we do that because we uh, we think that when the champagne and the grape has enough sugar and enough flavor at the very origin we don't need to add any liquor or any sugar so my, my father was one of the first almost 20 years ago to actually uh, create a champagne that has no liquor added. 
and uh, they're both 100% Pinot Noir. They're both very, very well balanced, and they won't feel dry at all because there's some natural f- uh, sugar in the fruit. Yeah, they're quite amazing wines. Obviously, made from the the red grape, which is Pinot Noir. But one is a Blanc de Blanc, and it's interesting that we call it Blanc de Blanc because, um, well. It was Pinot Noir, and so I guess it's Blanc de Noir is what we want to say, but it's, it's really like a white wine. Of course, you have the, the rosé wine, which is pink. Yeah. So you have the same grapes, the same uh, vineyards, the same winemaking, but truly different colors and, and very interesting textures in the wine. The, uh, the Brut Rosé had a, a, obviously a, a more red fruit-driven palate, whereas the, the Blanc de Noirs was a little more citrus um, and uh, just a little more linear in its palate. Very... Very gentle wines on the palate, but also uh, finishing dry and with uh, great acidity. Yes, yes, exactly. We we like to think of these two wines as just sisters because they're both 100% Pinot Noir, but just the winemaking method makes a difference. And as you said perfectly, um, the rosé uh, the rosé champagne goes through what we call skin contact maceration. So we will actually. Uh, right before pressing, retain all of the red berries flavor that are contained in the skin. Very delicate, very fresh. And this is what we want with the rosé. It's still very dry. It's not because the rosé has a darker color that it's going to be sweet. Um, so it's still very dry, but has the right balance between minerality and all the like. It's like eating out of a strawberry bowl almost. <laughs> and uh, we love strawberries as well. And I understand that uh, you have 13 different expressions of champagne, which is quite unique. There's uh, many houses that produce really four or five with the vintage. Uh, the vintage champagne from Jappé is called Grand Cendré, and it's a 2006 vintage. So Charlene, tell me about uh, what makes vintage champagne so special, and of course of the Grand Cendré. By so champagne is usually a blend of different harvests. Uh, That's what we call a non-vintage. So when we think one vintage stands out, uh, meaning the quality of the weather, uh, of the, the balance between the acidity and the sugar is so high that we will actually vintage it. So uh, it's usually a, a, a synonym of a great year. So we are now really releasing, we released it actually a year ago, the Grand Cendré 06, 2006, because it has the perfect quality for aging too. So it's a beautiful wine now that has almost nine years and it shows a lot of complexity because of the aging on the lease, uh, which we would want for a perfect balance between the Pinot Noir and the Chardonnay. Actually, 55% Pinot Noir, 45% Chardonnay. So when we come back from this break, we're going to chat more with Charlene uh, Drapier of the 8th Generation Family Champagne Drapier right here on Happy Hour Radio. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hello, I'm John Patterson with Patterson Sellers. You're listening to Happy Hour Radio on 570 KVI. The Commute with Carlson, weekdays 6 to 9 a.m. on Talk Radio 570 KVI. You're in the know with KVI Want to Know Weekends. Here's more Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. Hey, this is Christopher Chan, your host of Happy Hour Radio, and I am in downtown Seattle at Wild Ginger, having uh, the extreme pleasure of speaking with Charlene Drapier, 8th Generation Champagne Family. Uh, in located in the Obe, and we're talking about vintage champagne. Uh, vintage champagnes have been uh, well regulated by the uh, committee intervenes the champagne uh, for a minimum of thirty six months. But the Grand Cendre is aged for how long? Six years, six years and a half minimum. So that's way more because we believe 
um, that this wine needs to settle more and be more in contact with the yeast. So this is exactly uh, the time by which we release it is when we think the wine is ready. So the wine we thought was ready in 2014. So we have a perfect expression now ready to be to be enjoyed with uh, with a wonderful haute cuisine meal without any problem because it has this depth and this complexity coming from the aging. Well, I see you have some in your glass, so I'm curious. Why don't you take a sip and tell me what sort of uh, the balance and the, the palate, the fruits, etc. Uh, speaking with Charlene Drapier, 8th generation Champagne family of the Champagne Drapier. So we're talking about the Grand Cendre uh, 2006, right? Is that right? 2006. 2006. So what do you taste in this wine? Yeah, so I'm tasting um, a lot of elegance, and I think um, it comes from the right balance between the confit. I don't know if that's a word in English, but um, confit bread, uh, very brioche, very nutty. Um, it goes through oak, but very subtle, so you wouldn't find any taste of vanilla, but more... Um, and more of the almondy toastiness that comes from um, from this aging. Uh, it's a delicious wine. Um, obviously, has a lot of depth. When we talk about vintage wines, you're getting more depth, of course, from the lees contact. And and most great houses are are doing a five, six, seven, even eight years on. Uh, Sir Lee, and that gives you that great complexity. But of course, these wines can age as well because they have that great acidity and also depth of flavor. So if you're sitting at home with your multi-vintage wines or non-vintage champagnes, drink them up. Don't try to sit on those too long because they're, they're made to be drunk fresh and young. But the Grand Cendre 2006, uh, certainly a beautiful wine uh, with great complexity. And what I'm finding here is that these wines don't have the racing acidity that I get from a lot of champagnes, which is very more pleasant. It's much more drinkable and approachable in the mouth is that uh is that a secret for drapier uh yes well we try to find the perfect balance so uh that in the mouth it wouldn't feel too acidic or too heavy and this is what we want with the with the use of our terroir so we're on uh, limestone cumergent limestone so we want to have uh overly acidic wines but not heavy like if it were grown on clay so i think the secret lies in the balance but i won't tell you what the secret is <laughs> well we do love secrets especially in the world of wine so here's some of the champagnes you can probably find around town i know that you're getting back into the market and probably all the great stores the esquins the mccarthy and shearings the the, uh, um, the George Kingen's uh, Pete's Wine Shops, etc. Um, so we have Carte d'Or, we have the Blanc de Blanc Signature, the Brut Rosé, which is 100% Pinot Noir, the Brut Natur, which is also a Blanc de Noirs, but 100% Pinot Noir, and Brut Natur Rosé and Grand Cendré. Now these are just six of the wines. That was a six? Yes. So anything that is a hidden gem, and you, do you have a tasting room we can go visit someday over in the Aube in Champagne? Yes, you're more than welcome to come over. We have beautiful cellars that date back from 1152 that we will be very pleased to show you, and also to taste the whole range, even the ones that are not here in Washington. So we'd be very happy to have you over in Urville, our tiny village of 150 people down in the Aube region. Oh my goodness, you probably call them in to start working, except for the grandmas and stuff, or maybe they're helping sort berries as well. Yeah, yeah. Also, Drapier has created a new uh, a new bottle shape for uh, the, the champagne. I shouldn't say shape, it's just really a new bottle size. Tell me about this particular bottle. How much, how big is it? So we produce the largest bottle in the world, which is 30 liter, which is the equivalent of 40 bottles. So it's really, really big. It weighs um, almost by weight. I shouldn't say that, but it's over, it's over 120 pounds. And it makes a really delicious champagne because we do the fermentation in the bottle. And it's, it's an amazing show. Also, 
opening it is up for of course a challenge but once you get there it's really fun and the champagne is really amazing so that's uh, that's something very unique that we produce to to do the bottle fermentation in many of the bottles uh, the large format bottles from France have been named after uh, kings from the Bible of the old uh, Judaism kings uh, uh, Methuselah Nebuchadnezzar Balthazar tell me the name of this large 40 bottle bottle yeah so um, my father thought we would we should keep on going with this tradition of Babylon kings, but I believe he just found the most uh, difficult words to pronounce because it's actually called the Melchizedek. Very long, so that's the name of the 30-liter bottle. Melchizedek. Well, how fun is this? I've had a great time here at Wild Ginger, part of our In the Vineyard series. Charlene Trappier, uh, merci beaucoup, enchanté, and uh, bon voyage for your next destination. Merci beaucoup, Christophe, and thank you for, for letting me uh, present my wines. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining me on Happy Hour Radio today. We're right here, 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. on 570 KVI. Check out our website, happyhourradio.net. And remember, folks, life is always better with a designated driver. Cheers!